Hey, y'all. And welcome to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home to all things spooky, southern, and unexplained. I'm Carolina Girl Heather. And I'm Florida Man Tony. And we're going to ask for likes on our Facebook page and five-star review button clicks on your podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever. Yep. But first, we must earn them. I think today we're heading to the Mississippi Delta to look at the mysterious life of a blues musician, Robert Johnson. At first, he was a mediocre, even bad musician. But rumor has it that he sold his soul to the devil and became one of the most influential and accomplished musicians of all time. Musicians. 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 Yeah. Actually, he was considered, like, the baseline of perfection. He's recognized as a master of blues, particularly Delta blues. And it may be that his talent came at a cost. Uh, He is also a founding member of the 27 Club. Sounds fascinating. Indeed. Shall we head down to the Delta then? Well, I think first we need to explain what the 27 Club is for our people who might not know. So probably most of you are aware that there's a constantly growing list of music artists who pass away at the shockingly young age of 27. This curious coincidence attracted the attention of pop culture some time ago. Many of the deaths are accidents, overdoses, suicides, suicides, and some of them are even unknown. But among them are Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. Isn't Kurt Cobain one of them? He is the one that that is what caused people to sort of to notice this whole thing. Uh, Jean-Michel Bastien. Skiat, mm-hmm. uh, Mia Zapata, Amy Winehouse, yep, Brian Jones, Anton Yelchin. Oh wow, I didn't know he was a part of that. Well, so back in the '60s is when the whole concept really began mm-hmm. and kind of got its name. It was mostly just an interest in the odd coincidence that everyone was 27. I mean, obviously not everybody, but anyone in this group was 27. But they were also musicians, limited to singers and musicians. But a little more recently, it includes actors and artists. Hence Basquiat and Anton Yelchin. They're just people who are unfortunate at the same time. Ugh. It's always 20, age 27. Yeah, age 27. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever looked at, let's check out all the people who died young at 29. I don't know if that's a thing, but for whatever reason, this has just attracted people's attention and, you know, gotten into their imaginations. Wow. But the whole reason we mention all of this mm-hmm. rather downer bit is that Robert Johnson is allegedly the first. He is the first. Okay, so have you, Tony, seen the gloriously hilarious film Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? A while ago, yes. I love this film, and it's got George Clooney and a mm-hmm. number of fabulous people in it, and it's set in the 1930s. And part of the plot line is George Clooney's character and two others pick up this young African-American man with his guitar. He's hitchhiking, and he introduces himself as Tommy Johnson. Tommy Johnson. And they have a discussion, and he talks about how he sold his soul to the devil yep. at the crossroads, and that's why he's a good guitar player. And it hit me then, and I've always kind of assumed that he is the cinematic version of Robert Johnson. I mean, because he has to be. Yeah, I mean... It's the right time, it's the right place. So, like you mentioned, Robert Leroy Johnson is who we're talking about right now. I can't believe I'm even friends with you when you do that. He was born May 8, Mm -hmm. 1911 and lived until August 16, 1938. 27 years. I'm so glad you can do the math. (laughs) Not much is known about him during his life outside of the small musical circuit of the Mississippi Delta. And it's probably just because he's, you know, poor, black. Growing up, there's not a whole lot of documentation. Oh, yeah. Um, But he does have researchers and biographers who have decided to dedicate 
themselves to him. Gail Dean Wardlaw and Bruce Conforth, um, they've written a biography called Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson. And even then, it's really hard to kind of pull apart what really happened versus legend. Well, as is at any time, you know, True. when we're still talking about history, it's hard to just jump between what's factual and what's... Embellishment. Yeah, campfire story. <laughs> Publicity. Yeah. PR. So Robert Leroy. Leroy Johnson. Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, uh, May eighth, nineteen eleven. Which mm-hmm. May eighth is not very long no. ago. Not nineteen eleven, but the May eighth part. It was eight days ago. Indeed. And his life started out kind of unconventionally for him. Okay, so his mother Julia was married to Charles Dodds, who was a fairly successful sharecropper. They had <laughs> of course. ten children. Ten children. Robert Robert was the youngest and was apparently born out of wedlock. His father was a plantation worker named Noah Johnson. I'm going to go back and say 10 children. I've only had one. Oh my gosh, 10. And given where they lived and the time and everything, I can only imagine that they were impoverished, I guess you could say. With, what is it, like 11, 12 people in the household? Now, Charles Dodds was a successful businessman and farmer for the time. Ten children. However, now this part gets interesting, he fled Hazelhurst in the dead of night, disguised as a woman, to avoid being lynched after a dispute with John and Joseph Marchetti, two Italian Hazelhurst businessmen. Apparently, Joseph Marchetti and Dodds shared the same mistress. Ooh. So Charles fled to Memphis, ended up settling in an apartment, changed his name to Charles Charles Spencer. And when Johnson, our subject, was just three or four, he joined Dodd's slash Spencer in Tennessee. Memphis though, right? Yeah. And apparently this was like a whole new world. Yeah, that had to be a big change. Yeah, I'm not sure what Hazelhurst is like, but I mean, Memphis as you say, he probably had to sing like Ariel, you know. Right. But he went to school and actually discovered popular music. His older brother taught him to play the guitar and he loved the guitar and he played and practiced constantly like all good musicians should. Yeah, like you should. Like one does. Now after several years, he returned to the Delta, where he joined his mother and stepfather, Dusty Willis. Now, Johnson was much more keen on his musical craft than working in the fields, and I can't say as I blame him. (laughs) And he continued to hone his craft, but legend has it, he just wasn't actually very good at it. Yeah, that's what I heard, that he was just, I mean, he was just sort of mediocre, I guess you could say. And despite all of his time and effort, he just wasn't getting any better. Yeah. Which has got to be frustrating. Um, as a little side note, um, this is more of his personal history. When he was 18 or 19, he was got married. He got married more than once, and both wives would pass away fairly young. His first wife dies in childbirth while he's on tour. Oof. So he didn't even discover this until he got home, and his in-laws basically blamed him. Not so much that his absence caused her death, but they definitely blamed him for being gone, and made sure that he knew that his music was evil, his whole lifestyle was evil, how dare he be gone, you know, that kind of thing. And they wanted nothing to do with him, so he pretty much lost his entire extended family at the same time. That's rough. Yeah, I think so. One of the earliest accounts of Johnson as a musician comes from the Delta Blues Pioneer's Sun House, and that's like one of Robert's idols. I think it's cool that you can have be starstruck even back in the 30s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think they first encountered the young artist in like 1930. House recalled that Johnson blew a harmonica 
up and was pretty good with that, but he wanted to play guitar. Which we've already noted are not particularly yeah. stellar. <laughs> uh, Johnson's guitar skills, according to Mr. Sunhouse, were less than stellar, I guess you could say. Mm. And while House was on break, Johnson picked up the Stars' superior instrument and tried playing it. The older musician referred to his attempts as such a racket he had never heard. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, I want to learn how to play guitar. I'm going to be the best guitarist in the world. Dude, don't ever touch my guitar again. You sound horrible. <laughs> but also just the, I guess, the chutzpah of picking up your idol's guitar while he's on break at the bar. Yeah. I can't imagine that myself, but it was a different time, perhaps. They would be like, get that guitar away from that boy. <laughs> Like, people would say that, and, like, he's running people crazy with it. Like, just, just driving them crazy with it. Yeah, I understand that his performances were so bad, he would get kicked out of the joint. They just boot him out because he was just so bad. Even one time, Sun House was dragged back onto stage just so they could kick Johnson off. That's gotta be humiliating. Oh, yeah. So, this incident is allegedly, as I mentioned, so humiliating. This is what led to the Crossroads experience. Oof. So he's trudging his way home in a personal depression. He reaches an intersection and it is noted that he just collapses to the ground and prays to whomever will listen that he just wants to be a great musician. And he looks up and in the distance he sees a figure. Mm -hmm. He is approached by an elderly black man wearing a black and red outfit. And it is precisely midnight. I don't know how he knows. Mm. But according to the story, it is midnight. The man and he chat a little bit. They uh, talk about the guitar. This mysterious man reaches out and asks to see the guitar and says, it's out of tune. Let me tune it for you. So he does. And in exchange, he mentions sort of casually that Johnson now owes him a favor. Perhaps his soul. Now, I'm not sure if Johnson really believed that, but allegedly he agrees. Yeah. I mean, and it begs the question, was this the devil? Yeah. Papa Legba. This is, you know, he is also cited as a potential... Papa play. Legba? Voodoo. I don't know if he's a god exactly, but he's a trickster spirit who does a lot of deal making. Oh. But sort of like the genie of the lamp or something. You have to be very specific and it sometimes it backfires a little bit. But whoever just tuned the guitar, it said that Johnson could feel that there was like electricity in the air and then suddenly he took back his guitar and he could play more beautiful music than he could ever play before. Well, didn't he, like, disappear for a couple of months? He did. Um, according to the stories, he kind of went out of pocket, as they say. Um, it's not certain for how long. Um, some say six months, some say a whole year. But when he returns from wherever it is he's been, he played once more for Sun House and a fellow musician, Willie Brown. And of course, they were, I'm sure, not very eager to get him on their stage. But then they were staggered by his improvement. Oh, yeah. Quote, he was so good, marveled House, when he finished all our mouths were standing open. And the audience was amazed considering the previous engagement where they were like, please <laughs> go away. Like, when they practically booed him off stage. Now legend says that when he plays he would face the wall away from the audience and he would say, you know, better acoustics which I guess in days before speakers and all maybe? I'm not sure how accurate that is. But the story is that he didn't want people to see his, um, shall we say, infernal accompanist. Oh, so sort of like someone was playing with him. Kind of. I'm not exact. Again, a lot of these details are sort of blurry and legendary, but yeah, that is part of the legend. Um, and he, he left the area. He did. Yeah, like, I remember hearing stories about how, like, after his first, like, real engagement where he played with a bunch of people and they were just amazed, he was like, okay, going somewhere else. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I guess if you're suddenly successful or accomplished, you want to get out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. maybe? But he went as far as Chicago, New York, Detroit, St. Louis. And wow, these are he all... did not stay in the South. <laughs> no, he did not. And these are all blues beacons at the time. These mm-hmm. are big places to be. And he occasionally toured with a friend, a fellow bluesman named Johnny Shines. Oh, that wow. That just is such a fabulous That's name. That's a cool name. Now, this is another little side note. He commented that Johnson was always neat and tidy, despite days spent traveling the dusty Delta highways. Well, then. I don't know. That's just a nice little side benefit, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I know that he participated in only two recording sessions. One was in San Antonio, 1936, and one was in Dallas in 1937. Both Texas. Yep, both Texas. The sessions were produced 29 distinct songs. Sorry, I did not know that. Wait, 29 songs in two sessions? Now, I don't know how recording artists of the day, or even back then, let alone now, how often, like, how many songs they can do at a time. Yeah, but wait, two sessions, mm-hmm. 29 songs with 13 surviving alternate takes. Yeah. Oh, wow. By the Country Music Hall of Fame producer, oh, Don Oh, okay. Okay. Now, and keep in mind, and all these songs, you can find them on YouTube, YouTube. Spotify. Yeah, yeah. They were recorded at low fidelity. Of course. In an improvised studio. Sort of like us. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And this is like the totality of his recorded oeuvre in his works. So yeah. I don't think we'd use that word for him. And most were, <laughs> <laughs> And most were released as 10-inch, 78 RPM singles, which if anyone is younger than we are and doesn't know what we're talking about, vinyls. Vinyl we're talking records. about records. <laughs> yeah, the big black flat discs. Yeah. And Those things that make the scratchy noise. Yeah. Irr- irr- sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. You just totally blew my mind. You were, I was thinking of something else like the whole record scratch. Ah, stop. Yeah. And I guess you were talking about rapping. Okay. And a few of them were released after his death. Now, most of the titles are a little bit um, suggestive. Not in like, a... Like, come on into my kitchen? Well, I was thinking more of the one called Hellhound on My Trail or Crossroad Blues. Yeah. There's definitely a theme there. Oh, yeah. Now, for... I'm not a professional musician. I know a lot and I'm a decent singer. You know, I'm not able to analyze music beautifully, but apparently what made these recordings so remarkable, other than the fact that he seemed to be tireless, yeah, that the vocals... Like this dude just never stopped apparently. Apparently not. The vocals are very complex and highly emotive thanks in part to his subtle yet effective pitch inflections known as microtonality. My musical friends will probably get that better than we do. I have no clue. So he sings in a very... Heather um, can see the dumbfounded look on my face. <laughs> um, Let's just say that they're just musically complex. Yes. Which for someone, I mean, he's not completely untrained, but I guess it was unexpected. Um, and the other thing that made the recording so unique was his guitar technique. Oh, yes, absolutely. So he used, he was known for using a Gibson guitar, mm-hmm. and he used it which, like a second voice. Which, a second voice? Well, we're going to listen to it in a minute, okay. and, and you can hear what we're talking about. Now, Keith Richards, anyone who doesn't know who Keith Richards is, just uh, please don't tell us. Yes. Um, Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards who played Jack Sparrow's father. Yes. Um, quote, Robert Johnson was like an orchestra all by himself. Now, the source of Johnson's dexterity is shrouded in mystery, and maybe that's part of the legend here. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's sort of a significant part of the legend. He's long been considered one of history's greatest guitarists by other guitarists. It's said that it sounds like two people are playing. Wow. So we're going to have a moment and listen to the very few seconds of intro for Crossroad Blues. I went to the crossroads 
Uh, he's playing alone. Yes. Like there, back then, there was no layering, no like, and he had no accompaniment. That's just him and a guitar. And obviously, this is in the days before any kind of digital trickery. I yes, guess. yes, seriously. I mean, they had, they were very limited. It's basically what you recorded is what you heard. So, mm-hmm. 1930s. Wait, didn't didn't you tell me that Eric Clapton tried to attempt to, like, replicate what he did? As I understand, he studied this particular opening and concluded that somehow Johnson is playing both lines of music simultaneously, which means both lines as in melody and the bass line. Wow. Which are two separate things, yeah. which you need extra hands to do. Yeah. Like, you can do that on a piano, but not a guitar. And Eric Clapton himself can't replicate this method. Something that Johnson could apparently do after a single year. Yeah, after one year. Um, it should... I mean, I think we should talk about how grueling recording is. I mean, we did sort of touch on it a moment ago, but like I said, I don't know how many songs a recording artist these days... Now, granted, they have a lot more technology and technical stuff, but I don't know how many songs they turn out well, at a time. I, it was like, back then, like, it was just... You couldn't go back and edit it. You had to do the whole song over and over and over again. And he he was known to like never get tired and just song after song and track after track it was like he was doing it for the first time well he was you know that was her, he only recorded twice so he kind of was yeah residents of the mississippi delta would roll their eyes impatiently when fans and historians talked about the crossroad where johnson supposedly had met the devil it's one of those unwilling tourist things yeah I guess. and those in the know would point out that the highway 61 and highway 49 and then take a photo, but in modern day, that spot has moved like half a mile down the road So it's as not... compared to what it was in Johnson's lifetime. Right. So like, like whenever they updated and paved the roads, it was shifted. Yeah, so the, the crossroads are no longer there. At least the original ones. They're probably under a parking lot or something. There's like yeah. Motel 6. I don't know. Yeah. There's probably a Starbucks on there now. <laughs> it's no longer the crossroads demon. It's the Starbucks demon. <laughs> Ruby's the... in there sipping a chai latte. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. So the crossroads may or may not have been there, or at least they were someplace different. Yeah. So, and while his amazing improvement was either miraculous or infernal, we're not really sure. Yeah, either or. Um, there's a 2008 article in Living Blues magazine. Which, that's kind of awesome. Didn't know that was a thing. Absolutely. I, I say as if I've read it. I have not. But it offers a uh, more mundane and far less interesting explanation. So in the period that Johnson first kind of went off grid, I guess everyone off the grid technically back then, but when he sort of disappeared for a little bit. I was like, was there a grid back Uh, then? Probably not much. (laughs) He met... Ike um, Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman. Yeah. Are you familiar with good old I, Ike? Yep. I, I like Ike. You like Ike? I'm I like so, Ike. I'm sure there are people who'd be very glad. Yeah. According to the blues scholar and Johnson biographer, Don Conforth, who I mentioned way back at the top of this. Oh, yeah. Johnson spent the better part of a year living with and working with Zimmerman, studying his craft and practicing. Yeah, but could you pick up something like that within a year? Not sure. Unless he was some sort of idiot savant in learning. <laughs> Well, don't you have to be an idiot savant? Some people just learn differently. And, you know, he did learn at school. His brother showed him. I don't know. I'm not sure what Ike Zimmerman could offer that made it click for him. And you say you've heard of Zimmerman, but there's mm-hmm. not much recorded about him either. And so he seems to be a bit of a mysterious it's, it's character. Only, yeah, it's only legend. So, like, I mean, there, there are people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, I've experienced Ike Zimmerman, who is Bagger Vance, where he just comes in 
and, you know, he's the blues player who could play the guitar with its only two strings and make it sound good. <laughs> like, and I'm not joking. I will show you. It's, it's kind of crazy. Interesting. Yeah. And yet, for being uh, Johnson's shall we say, guitar hero. Yeah. His personal savior and all. <laughs> Johnson's friends had never heard of him. Not at the time. You know, they never mentioned that this was the person who taught him everything he knows. Well, maybe they didn't know. Maybe not. <laughs> like who? <laughs> Pretty much. Though, um, there is evidence. I'm not sure what it is, but mm-hmm. there is mentioned that there's evidence that Zimmerman himself was into hoodoo. Yeah. Not voodoo, but hoodoo. I love that they rhyme, though. Yes. So maybe the selling his soul to the devil in some fashion still holds legendary yeah, water. maybe. So that sort of brings us to the question, you know, was he really infernally talented or did he just like to lean into this reputation that, you know, people are going to say blues is evil and satanic. Maybe just go with it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Honestly, that's what I would do. You totally would. I really would. If somebody is like, oh, you only have your power because you're evil. You know what? Yeah. Why not? But I think it's fascinating, too, that anytime there's a new development in music, the, the people who like the classics, the stage, old music yeah. it's like oh that's evil every time we have a new rock form I mean I know growing up in the 80s like the, the heavy metal yeah, punk and, and like all that heavy metal punk all of that anytime parental advisories up, yeah anytime it popped up especially with like rap music it's all e- evil it's all evil if it's not classic or gospel and in some cases country it's evil it's just funny to think like blues I guess it's just because we've come so far since then yeah but I guess considering that they were used to I don't know chamber music or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they listen to. So anyway, yes. So the music was considered evil. So let's just lean into that potentially. Because he always he wasn't like shy about this. He told people about this bargain. Like he promoted this image of himself as someone who sold his soul to the devil. He was just very blatant about it. Well, I mean, maybe it was a metaphor. I mean, it could it's be. sort of like Bowie's "The Man Who Sold the World." You know, it's more. It's not he actually sold the world. There's a metaphor behind that. Like, of course, "The Man Who Sold the World" was a song about him changing from Ziggy. Stardust to David Bowie. I love that you managed to work that into a story about a 1930s blues band. But you get what I'm saying. Like, maybe maybe selling his soul wasn't... Maybe it was a metaphor for I went and I did something bad. Could be. You know? I It, it could be something like that. Or yeah. maybe he's just playing the character. Oh, who knows? But as we've mentioned before, use invoking the devil or Papa Legba. Yeah. It's like, you get what you want, but not quite the way you expect. You can't always give what you want. I'm going to talk over you now. (laughs) He has a terrible string of bad luck. His second wife gets sick and dies. At some point, he is hit by a truck. Oof. It was a pretty bad accident, but Johnson was mostly fine. Yeah. And apparently someone that he was performing with at times saw this and was so freaked out he would not perform with him anymore. Wow. Um, and despite becoming talented and accomplished, like basically by all counts, an amazing performer, he's not doing well commercially. Well, I know that like a lot of his records didn't sell. Like... No, like not at the time. And bookers were overlooking him. So, you know, you have this theory of was he cursed? I, was he cursed or was it like he was an african-american in the 1930s i mean obviously that is something to consider i mean the day before his one of the recording sessions i don't know which one he'd been arrested for vagrancy wow had to be bailed out of jail by the the people who run the studio and um it was noted that he was rather bruised and battered for quite some days afterwards so yeah wow so he was not doing that great despite being an amazing guitarist. And he just, you know, I think the deal was, I want to be a good musician. He never 
never said successful. Well, yeah. Like, all his success seems to happen at, long after he's gone. Robert died near Greenwood, Mississippi, in August 16th, I believe, and it was 1938. He was 27 27. years old. Or, yeah, he was 27 years old. His death remained unreported for 30 years. That's kind of a long time. Yeah. And there was no autopsy. The public had been left to speculate the cause of death, adding to the war of him. Out so of, you when know, did they start doing autopsies? Just um, out of curiosity. I know it started. It started very early, like around 1901. So they but it wasn't prevalent. Like it, it was sort of a pseudoscience back then. So okay. You have to wonder then, again, he's apparently not super rich, not super well-known, though probably he was well-known in the juke joints and all that, like yeah. amongst fellow black artists and all. Well, I mean, but just would they have done an autopsy? Blue, like, blues artists would have known who he was, yeah. especially if the reports... In, in his inner circle, they yeah, would have Well, if the, ports, if the reports are correct, and I've heard him play, not live, of course. I would hope not. Yes. But, you know, hearing him playing, I would have told people about him, like, dude, you need to listen to this guy play because it's magic. So, yeah, he has a reputation, if not particularly well-known name Mm -hmm. outside of his little circle. So, according to the people who knew him, Mm -hmm. fellow blues artists David Honeyboy Edwards Edwards. and Sonny Boy, they rhyme, Sonny Boy Williamson. Do you know these guys? Or Um, know of them? I know Honey Boy Edwards, but I've never heard of Sonny Boy Williamson. I wonder if they performed together. That would be awesome. I don't know. But according to them, Sonny Boy and Honey Boy. We know that Johnson spent the last few weeks of his life playing regularly at Mm -hmm. the juke joint that he tended to go to, attached to the Three Forks store just outside of Greenwood. Now, one version of the story has him flirting with a woman at the party on August 13th. Yeah. And he was poisoned by her jealous husband, who just happened to be the bartender. The bartender, yeah, I'd heard that one. So, he's suddenly too sick to perform. He ends up back at his hotel. His mother comes to his bedside, where he confesses that the blues and guitars are tools of the devil, and he promptly dies. Uh I have to tell you something. All that music, it's the devil. Thank you for that very tasteful recreation. Um, in 1968, that journalist that we talked about, Gail Dean Wardlow, sought to unearth his death certificate. Wardlow discovered that the artist may have been born with congenital syphilis. Really? Okay, then. According to the doctor, it's possible that he had had an aneurysm caused by the syphilis and his enjoyment of moonshine, but no real cause of death is listed. Okay, so I have to be curious in my very non-medical mind. Mm-hmm. The symptoms that they described him having, like, he apparently vomited quite a lot because of being poisoned, or so they thought. Can can be caused by aneurysm. Okay, what about... I'm not even sure what congenital syphilis is. That doesn't sound good either. Uh, that would be congenital. It'd be passed on by the mother. So, the mom had syphilis, passed it on to him. It usually wouldn't show up for, like, months or weeks after he was born, sometimes even years. So, I'm curious if she had it from her first husband, or if it perhaps came from Noah Johnson, mm-hmm. her boyfriend there. Don't know. Uh, Congenital just means that he got it from his mommy. Lovely. Yeah. Something to pass down the generations, I guess. Yeah, what a lovely legacy. Yeah. In 2006, there was a somewhat more recent account, more more recent than 1968. In the British Medical Journal, Dr. David Connell argues that based on Johnson's appearance in photos, which there aren't a lot, but there's some, he may have had Marfan syndrome. Ooh. Which is kind of, I I hate to say favorite, 
but I, I first heard about it because they always pair it up with uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it's just it's a genetic disorder that affects like the connective tissues, like your tendons, ligaments and such. yeah, tendons, ligaments, stuff like that. I know that there are some people who have it who have strangely successful uh, movie careers because they're very tall and gangly and mm-hmm. make good aliens and whatnot. So continuing on with this theme of mystery and and not really sure what's the truth, Johnson's final resting place yeah. is also a little bit confusing. There are three headstones oh, around Greenwood. Oh, dear God. <laughs> so this is like a Jesse James thing, isn't it? Uh, Jesse James, Alice Flagg, remember the fun of, well, there's that monument that says Alice, but it's not actually that Alice. Yeah. And, uh, we'll, yes. we'll cover the Jesse James thing later, but needless to say, there's multiple Jesse James like actual headstones. There's like three headstones and, and a man who presented himself as the surviving Jesse James. Yeah. But moving on, yes, three headstones in Greenwood. So in 1990, Columbia Records erected a monument at the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, mm-hmm. where the artist was long believed to be buried in an unmarked grave. So that same year, now this cracks me up, an Atlanta band named the Tombstones <laughs> had a smaller marker placed at the Payne Chapel in Quito, Mississippi, okay. where it was alleged that Johnson was laid to rest. And in 2000, <laughs> an old lady named Rosie X. Scridge claimed that her, her husband helped to bury Johnson under, okay, here we go, pecan or pecan. It's pecan. Southerners have arguments about this. Tree <laughs> at a church north of Greenwood where a third headstone now sits. I love that they mentioned the pecan tree, but not the church name. Yeah, yeah. Well, So I it's mean, two churches and under a tree. Yeah, two churches and a pecan tree. So where is he? We don't. I don't know if anyone's really tried to figure that out. Mm-hmm. So musicologist Alan Lomax uh, went to Mississippi in 1941 to record Johnson, also not known of his death. Remember that part about he wasn't really reported dead for like 30 yeah. years? Yeah, and uh, Don Law, the music producer we mentioned a while back, then worked for Columbia Records, assembled a collection of Johnson's recordings titled King of the Delta Blues Singers. Uh, it was released by Columbia Records in 1960 is widely credited with finally bringing Johnson's work to a wider audience. The album would become influential, especially on the nascent British blues movement. Yeah, oh, Eric Clapton has called Johnson the most important blues singer that ever lived. Yeah, Eric Clapton being the one who's tried to replicate his style and could not. Um, Musicians who cite Johnson as an influence include, but aren't limited to, like, Fleetwood Mac, the Rolling Stones, Led Led Zeppelin. Ed Zeppelin, Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon, Willie Dixon, Keith Richards, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, and Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, of he, all people. Yeah, he yeah, was like, everywhere. Yeah, seriously. Like, a lot of people knew him. And the significance of his music, his accomplishments, have been recognized by numerous organizations and publications, including the Rock and Roll, mm-hmm. Grammy, and Blues, yep. Halls of Fame, and the National, National Recording Pre- Preservation. So we've basically covered his legend, his music, his story, his life and death, and all the confusion therein. So what do you think? Do you think that his his legend is true? Do you really think he somehow sold his soul to the devil? Or do you think he just somehow spontaneously became very talented? One and the same? Could be. <laughs> I mean, I'd heard the story a long time ago. I, I got into blues music when I was 12 or 13. 
Like, that's when I started really falling in love with, like, old blues music. But I had I'd heard of Robert Johnson, and then I had offhandedly heard, you know, about how he sold his soul to the devil, and that's what made him popular. And it's not that I, I'm, I don't believe it, but, I mean, anything could have happened. It could have been supernatural. It could have been he just dedicated 12 months to just balling on the guitar <laughs> and that's what made him a badass but I've heard his music it's crazy I think it would be interesting I can't imagine why anyone would have but it would be fascinating if someone had recorded him before and then after yeah sort of yeah because all we of. have is just the notes of he was so bad people kicked him off stage to wow <laughs> maybe he was just playing bad yeah like ma- like no what I'm saying is maybe he was always that good and just played it bad oh so he could sort of make out that he sell the persona where he could sell the persona I mean that is a thought I had not considered that as a possibility no that's an interesting one like say for instance if you're like I want to play the guitar and like oh no you know we've heard you play the guitar dude you heard me tuning it up no 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 you're just you're bad (laughs) okay I'm bad at at the guitar and then you just play it bad, let people believe you're bad, and then all of a sudden you just burst into the scene, and you're magical like he is, and you just start playing, you blow people's minds, it's going to draw in that crowd, and then you sell this persona of, I went and sold my soul to the devil, and now I'm a god among men when it comes to <laughs> guitar. I am the Carlos Santana of the 1930s. So I mean, maybe, but to me it seems like that would take be many, many years of wasted time when he could have been making and money rather than getting kicked off stage. Well, I mean, some people play the long game. Uh, well, maybe. The long con. The long con, indeed. Very much. I don't know. Um, being that I'm basically a pagan and you're a different kind of pagan, we're not really into the whole satanic thing, but... No. I'm, I'm a Drostian. I don't believe in that crap. I do, however, think there are spirits of sorts where, you know, the Celts have this long tradition of the Fae. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I believe in Arabic theories or theologies. There's the jinn. There are always things that are willing to make a deal, make an offer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Whether it's the Fae or trickster spirits or whatever. And and if you're not careful, give you exactly what you want. A but, monkey's paw. Mm, if, yes. you're, if you don't word oh, it yeah. correctly, then you're screwed. I want my great-grandmother to come back from the dead. Well, now she's on your front lawn as a zombie. Like, yeah, you, you, you have to be specific about what you want. I'm now thinking of the live-action Aladdin where the, you gotta word this very carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why that came to mind, but I, I just keep hearing Will Smith's genie going, well, I can make you a prince, or do you want me to make you a prince? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe he did run into some sort of spirit that could do it. I do think there is something magical, if you will, about Crossroads, and it's because it's considered a liminal place. Mm-hmm. Do I think it's completely ridiculous and crap? I don't. I don't know what did happen, but I do think it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think a lot of us would be tempted, you know, if you could suddenly become amazing at the thing you really want to do, it would be tempting. However, the cost of it being that, well, you live a miserable life and then you die, that's not great. No. He no, came no. into his greatness, what, in the 1960s? Well, after people, I mean, he was already gone. Well, I mean, it's it's like you have to be careful with what you wish. I want to be a great musician. Okay, but it'll be after you die. Well, he was a great musician at the time, but nobody knew who he was, yeah. except for his very, the juke joints where he was playing, because he and, was not getting And if he hurt. wished to be well-known, he got his wish. It didn't mean he was around for it, but he 
got his wish. Very tricky. Yep. Well, I think that's about it. <laughs> yes, as we get into our theological versus legendary discussions. Indeed. Well, thank you for joining us once again on Southern Pride Spooky, our journey into the Delta. So we hope you enjoyed this delve as best we could into the mysterious life of Robert Johnson. If you passed a pleasant time, give us a like on Facebook and maybe leave us some stars on your podcast platform. That would be amazing. We, we do appreciate your patronage. We, and we would appreciate the stars. We do. I, I, you know, ever since kid in, kindergarten and first grade, I like gold stars. Hey, yeah. And I am Heather, your Carolina girl. I'm Tony, the Florida man. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. I'm going to go play Guitar Hero now. You're going to take a little walk to that intersection down the street first? Absolutely. Fabulous. Fabulous.